The U.S. defense industry is large, complex, and competitive. It is also lucrative for those companies able to navigate it successfully. The American Society of Military Comptrollers helps bridge the gap between the boardroom and the battlefield while supporting transformation in the defense sector. The Business of Defense podcast brings you inside the companies working to achieve this directly from the business leaders and to understand how they create value for their companies and their customers. For more information on ASMC, visit asmconline.org. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Episode 67, Lawyers Ethically Using ChatGPT and Artificial Intelligence in Their Practice of Law. My conversation with Maryland ethics attorney, Erwin Kramer. Erwin is a highly accomplished attorney recognized for his expertise in professional malpractice and disciplinary defense. As the managing partner of the AV-rated litigation firm Kramer & Connolly, he has represented Fortune 500 companies, insurance carriers, and businesses worldwide in diverse legal matters. With a wealth of trial and appellate practice in state and federal courts, Erwin also brings a unique perspective on law practice and ethical challenges faced by attorneys. His contributions to the legal field extend beyond his practice. He has taught at prestigious law schools, published extensively, and founded the Legal Television Network to improve public access to legal information. Enjoy. Have you been enjoying the TechSavvyLawyer.page podcast? Consider giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast feeds. Erwin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you being here. And to get things started, please tell us, what is your current tech setup? Right now, I'm looking at two different monitors. Tell you that during the pandemic, I was spoiled. Mm -hmm. That I loved trying and arguing cases from the comfort of my own office. So I have <laughs> my one monitor with my exhibits queued up, the other that had the video itself on it. I thought it was fantastic. And when the pandemic ended, mm -hmm. and I had to drive to Annapolis from my Baltimore area home to try a case. I thought, this is ridiculous. I don't understand. I felt resentful that I had to actually drive to a courthouse to try a case. You know, I, why couldn't I do this in my office? So I think that was the silver lining in the terrible time we all went through with the global pandemic. But I use a number of programs to assist me in practice. For many years, I've been using Amicus Attorney as a practice management software tool. And I think I've used that since the mid-90s. Okay. I think I started with version one, and I'm still using it to this day. I couple that with PC Law for accounting, check writing, trust account management. Obviously, like most people in the world, I use Outlook for email. I will say the one area where I'm a bit of a legal dinosaur is that I still use WordPerfect instead of Word, and that's only because wow, wow, only because I had all this information, this legacy information right. that actually had been on WordPerfect. 
I kind of regret that years ago I didn't make the switch, but I actually do use both programs quite a bit because obviously clients and most of the world are MS Word environment, but I'm a PC environment, not Apple. And that's about the size of it, really. Wait, I have to ask. So you say you're a PC person and what type of phone do you have? A cellular phone. Cellular? I have a, a, now there you go. You're right. I have an Apple iPhone. That is true. And how long and is I that? I only have an Apple iPhone because <laughs> I used to have an Android and okay. my now 19-year-old daughter, younger at the time, told me that I was an absolute dinosaur and that I had to get an Apple iPhone. And then I got an Apple iPhone that was like the latest and greatest. And actually, I had a version more recent than the one she's using. Right. And now she's jealous and sorry that she ever recommended it. What do you know what version you have? I think it's a 13, I want to oh, say. Okay. And how do you find handling your office on an iPhone when you basically work in a Windows environment? Does that cause any conflict? Not at all. It has my outlook on it. Really have not tried to, quote, dial into my desktop, which I think on a small screen, at least for me, would be a bit cumbersome. And you know, I think it, it works just fine as far as I'm concerned. Excellent. I do like the fact that even though many people decry the fact that, oh, my God, now I'm always connected and there's always these expectations. Frankly, I think the technology has made the world easier for lawyers. I agree. So I have to ask, what kind of computer is your desktop? It is a Dell. Okay. I've had good experiences with them, but I've also... For multimedia use, because I actually do a fair amount of media work, having worked in Baltimore area television for quite some time, as well as doing a lot of my own video editing. I've had some other off-brand machines made for me that are a bit quieter than the usual PC and right. a bit more power that help me run in an Adobe Premiere environment. Excellent. And do you have a laptop for work? Maybe shuttling between two offices. I have a laptop for work. I guess we could call it work, but really I just use it to watch YouTube videos and baseball <laughs> games. If I could find a way to bill for that now, that never happens. <laughs> Do you have a tablet? No. Okay. I, I, does your daughter have a tablet? Yes. <laughs> Can I In other words, I bought tablets. <laughs> uh, it's not for me. All right. We're going to keep this for work. How's that? Okay. So let's get into the questions. Question one, what are the top three things an attorney can use chat GTP for in their work? I really don't know what the top three things are because I don't know that we have enough adoption that I've been able to compare notes. Many of the mm -hmm. lawyers that I speak with are like, yeah, I heard about that. Exactly what is it? You know, now those are the lawyers that are still getting used to their fax machines and email. <laughs> and you remember how many years after Al Gore invented the internet, they were still doing seminars saying you need a website? Yeah. Lawyers are slow adopters. And yeah. I think that's a function of the fact that we work in a field that is steeped in tradition. We follow the past precedent, for example. So we're slow when it comes to change and adapting to change. But I think we're going to need to step up our game because now the technology really threatens our current way of life, but it also has the power to revolutionize everything that we do. So 
when I've been faced with this and lawyers are saying it's going to replace us and all that, I'm like, it probably will replace you because you are not actually getting with the program and testing this out. I do think there are many fantastic uses for it. One that I mentioned when we were off the air is I had mm-hmm. it write a song about a lawyer who represents other lawyers with a flatulence problem to the <laughs> tune of Folsom Prison Blues and add Yiddish references. And I will say in seconds, it wrote a pretty nifty song for me. I just can't figure out how to bill for that. But certainly for those who are blogging, for those who have to write articles, it's a very convenient starting point. Yes. I will tell you that. Yes. It is definitively not an end point. It's something that can help one organize thoughts and brainstorm, get ideas, But at the end of the day, you got to make the work your own, at least at present. But right now, chat GPT is in its infancy. Candidly, it's scary what it will probably do when it's further along in development. I'm certain it will be able to write briefs. I'm certain that it will be able to site check, fact check. I'm certain that Westlaw and Lexis will be revolutionized in the way We can search for things using artificial intelligence. And there's no question that if it exponentially increases our efficiency, it might kill billable hours altogether. Once it's no longer taking quite as much time, lawyers aren't desirous of a pay cut, but we are going to have to find a different way to add value to our clients' lives. And maybe there will be less of a need for lawyers. I don't know. I'm not running for the hills at the moment or panicking, but I think like most other tools, it'll be a great force of good. I have a feeling that it's going to lower the barriers of access to justice because there will be artificial intelligence solutions that will enable people who cannot afford us to Mm -hmm. nonetheless get some legal help. I think that's a very positive scenario. Yeah. And if I could interrupt for a second, based from the date of our recording, I recently posted episode 65 with former Chief Judge Bridget Mary McCormick. And I think one of her concluding lines in our interview was something to the effect of that chat GTP will not replace us, but those attorneys who do not use chat GTP in their work will be replaced. I think that's an excellent observation. If we are resistant to technology, We can't pretend to provide competent legal representation. Competence requires competence in technology. This is the year 2023. This Mm -hmm. is in 1973. You need to get with the program. We certainly need to look at how can we be more efficient. And the lawyers who are less efficient aren't providing the quality service that clients are going to demand, particularly when they know. That so much can be done now and certainly into the future at the push of a button. I have two pinpoints I wanted to address with you while we're on this question. The first being, have you used ChatGTP in any of your work? I have used it because I actually do a fair amount of blogging at attorneygrievances.com and baradmit.com for bar bar applicants facing character and fitness issues. I've used it to start some articles. My usual, my prior to chat GPT approach was to see what else is out there in terms of articles on a given topic. I'd read up, I'd formulate thoughts and the like. Now what I do is I ask it some questions and it helps me brainstorm and all the rest. 
the finished product, you will not see a resemblance per se to the initial ideas that I've gleaned from chat GPT, but I will say it's a time saver. So in that respect, I've used, I haven't used it in the context of my legal work, client service work yet, in part because we're still learning a fair amount about the platform. I am concerned a bit about confidentiality issues. So to feed it actual client information right. to me would not be very useful. But I can see where, for example, the personal injury lawyer wanting to summarize a medical history of treatment and the like for purposes of getting a demand out can do it a lot more efficiently if they can simply feed it all in. My understanding is that the program itself, the artificial intelligence, doesn't store the information, but the provider of that, that right. is the intermediary, might. So I would caution lawyers in terms of what they feed into it, because remember, you're putting it out there in the ether. You don't really know exactly where it's going. So I am concerned about it from that perspective in much the same way that many have been concerned about cloud applications. That having been said, I think that problem is easily solved at some point. They can make a closed, and they have closed versions of chat GPT. Right. And I'm sure that there'll be one made for PI, personal injury, for medical malpractice, et cetera. The applications are endless. I will say that I have a blog post where you know, I joke that my my friend, and Ben will only use initials here, GPT, Mr. T, as he's affectionately known, boasted that he could explain any legal concept to a 10-year-old. So I asked him to explain race judicata to a 10-year-old. And he goes into the chat, actually explains about a fight on the school playground and wanting to change the rules of the game. And I said, using my 10-year-old mind, I said, aren't you describing the law of the case doctrine? And it said, you know, you're right. I apologize. I was wrong. That is the law of the case doctrine. So to summarize race judicata and gave me another example. And I said, well, you know, you can't like, you know, relitigate the same issue that's already been decided. I said, isn't that collateral estoppel and Chat GPT said, you know, you're right. I apologize again. That is collateral estoppel. And then gave me finally, after on the third attempt, All right. the, uh, the actual explanation for race judicata in a way that a 10-year-old could easily understand. And I was impressed. And, it, and then afterwards, it said, I really apologize for the earlier confusion. And I thought, wow, this does show something about artificial intelligence, because had that been an actual lawyer... They never would have apologized three times and admitted <laughs> they were wrong. So at least there are some advances that AI can provide over real lawyers even now. I have an idea for your next article. Have it explain to a 10-year-old the law of perpetuities. <laughs> the problem is I don't understand it, so I wouldn't know, I wouldn't know if its explanation was right or wrong. Forgive me. And incidentally, you know, we have a a Maryland lawyer's Facebook group and fellow was stating how he he once recited the rule against perpetuities on a date to prove to his date that he was actually a lawyer. And I wrote back and I said, listen, I'm not a relationship expert, but if you're, if you're quoting the rule against perpetuities on a date, I'm going to assume it was an early evening. <laughs> 
if the date actually even happened after that explanation. Like yeah. if you're like, like you're doing like, you know, like on match.com or whatever, and like you're having a back and forth with someone and <laughs> nothing spells romance like the fertile octogenarian. Pardon the interruption. I hope you're enjoying the techsavvyleer.page podcast as much as I enjoy making them. Consider buying us a cup of coffee or two to help defray some of the production costs. Thanks and enjoy. So, believe it, some of the conversation that we've been having kind of leads into my second question. And I'm going to ask one particular pinpoint after I ask you the question. So, for our second question, who are the top three ethical mistakes attorneys make? with using ChatGTP and AI. And you were talking about how it's a great platform to start off writing something. And you and I had talked off camera about the attorney in the Southern District of New York who had ChatGPT draft, or sorry, actually write his pleading, provide citations, and apparently he didn't read it. So he submitted to the court and opposing counsel like, hey, we're not finding these citations. So what's going on? And the lawyer conceded that he had ChatGTP, you know, write it out for him. And apparently he didn't read it. He didn't check the citations and, you know, he's going to be in trouble. You know, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I recognize that this is a new platform and it's giving out not always the correct answer. This was bound, right? There are people who are in a hurry. They rely on things they should not, right. whether it's technology or something that's not at all technological. We've all made similar mistakes. Obviously, this is a big one. You need to check your work. I think today, this artificial intelligence, as demonstrated by my race judicata example, is not something you can simply take to the bank and rely on. I'm not certain that's going to be true in a year or two. In fact, I think that Westlaw, Lexis, the, all the research, the computerized legal research services are going to be AI-based, and it will do the shepherdizing that we used to do for those of us old enough to remember books. Remember? Oh, do you remember yes, books? I do. Papyrus, it was a substance you could hold in your hand and yeah. even lift weights with some of these reporters. Now, all they are useful for is taking photographs in front of, but they actually were once used, and I'll tell this to some of your podcast listeners who may not remember this, we actually did do research manually without computers at one time. Yeah. But all of that's going to be revolutionized even more by the use of AI. Right now, it's not ready. It's in its infancy. I think, frankly, one of the top, I don't know if it's an ethical mistake, but alluding to what the judge told you, and I would agree with this, one big mistake are the attorneys that don't even want to try it. Right. I think ultimately that becomes an ethical mistake because if you are reluctant to adopt technology, if you are reluctant to grow either technologically right. or in any other way, the likelihood is you're not going to maintain the quality of service and practice and representation that you need to provide. And ethical mistakes tend to follow. So let me ask you, if I may, a hypothetical ethical question. I'm an attorney, I'm, I'm established, and for whatever reason, I refuse to do my Lexis research online. I have to use books. I have to go to the library and I have to do the hand, you know, the hand shepherdization, if you will, by going through the different books versus using a computer. 
So you start going to that next step. And of course, you know, now we're talking about moving from basically having to research ourselves on the computer to having the computer do it for us. So in the my hypo, is there an ethical duty not to use the old-fashioned way? I think there is. Okay. I can see an argument on both sides of the issue, but I don't think you get the quality out manual research that you do with computerized. Now, there's one area where I think manual research probably did have a bit of an advantage. And that is sometimes we would get lost in the case law and stumble into things. Right. That we don't stumble into as much online. But to rely on manual research, manual methods of performing our tasks, is like keeping manual books to manage your trust account. I consider that malpractice. Okay. We have all kinds of computer-assisted approaches that may not be AI, but there's certainly a lot of technology that helps cut down on error. Okay. And to fail, to refrain from using it is to make your own work more error-prone. But it's also, I think, if you love the book so much, that's fine. But if you're my lawyer... Don't you charge me for all that extra time you're spending schlepping one Atlantic reporter after another in order to hunt down and then photocopy what you get as a result. Please don't do that. Because if you do that, charging me because you're a Luddite and you don't want to change with the times, I don't pay for that. That would be unethical. So we've already talked about confidentiality, sort of the second answer to the question. Do you have a third, third ethical mistake that attorneys are still make are making with using chat GTP and AI? No, okay. not, not that I can think of. Between confidentiality, checking your work, you know, keeping up to date with software, keeping up to date with technology. Yeah, I could kind of see how we covered three, a little bit blurred altogether, but we did cover three and I appreciate that. So let's move on to our final question. Erwin, what are your favorite top three workflows when doing work? I'm one of the early adopters of practice management software, and I'm one of its greatest advocates. Many years ago, I used Amicus Attorney, as I mentioned earlier in the show, and I have used, I put a lot of time in upfront to create what they call precedents, which frankly are work. That is, if you've ever handled a defense of a motor tort case in the circuit court in Maryland, There are certain things that absolutely happen. Those precedents are tied to buttons that will automatically spit out my discovery and the like. Mm -hmm. So that what I'm able to do is instead of shuffling paper like so many litigators do, I spend my time on things that are unique to a case, not things that are standard. Unlike many law firms who boast that they have all these templates and their assistants go in and change names and all this stuff, we don't do that. We put the time into creating the workflows, computerizing them, having computer-driven, menu-driven templates that automatically populate with the information you put in when you open the file. That then saves me time throughout the course of a litigation timeline and inures to my client's benefit, but also to my benefit and that of my staff. Namely, we spend our time using 
that muscle between our ears rather than repeating work and reinventing the wheel each and every time. And unfortunately, I think that despite the fact that this technology is nothing new, in fact, back when I started with Amicus, it was one of the only practice management programs out there. Today, there are numerous such programs, and they do all kinds of amazing things. And I think that to an attorney not using it, you're really adding enormous inefficiency to your process. Now, you might not know any better or different because you've never used it. Or, you know, I had one person who looked at it, and I'm very fond of showing it off to people to help them with their practices. I have no secrets here. And one lawyer said, wow, that's fantastic. I would never do that, though. Why not? It sounds like it would be a lot of work to set up. And that's true, but the payoff is in every single case thereafter for the rest of your practicing life. And the benefits are to your client and to you Mm -hmm. because you get to focus on those things that are necessary. It also can cut down on the support staff that you need and make the lives of your support staff much more pleasant because people would prefer, instead of doing things by rote and reinventing wheels, they prefer to use their brains. I think that's something that's critical. And it doesn't take chat GPT uh, and artificial intelligence innovations to get there. And yet, unfortunately, the same lawyers that are skeptical of artificial intelligence haven't used their own intelligence to implement technology into their own practices. And that's unfortunate because they're suffering and their clients are suffering. So you've talked about filling out forms automatically. Are there any two other things that you could talk about that you use in your practice for workflows? For example, as you know, I represent other lawyers. Some of the things that I do include preventive medicine. I do some law firm audits. Okay. I have something that I created, a questionnaire off of Adobe. Right. Available PDF that- Cool. I have radio buttons and all these things that are necessary, but it feeds me information that I can then use to help diagnose problems within a law firm. That's not terribly sophisticated computerization work, but it nonetheless is using technology to assist my clients in creating mm-hmm. something that I can use to help them. I My phone system itself is VOIP-based. Okay. If I get... A, message from you. It's something that transcribes automatically. And I know I don't have to go back and listen to a lot of things, but I also will use that same phone system with permission, of course, to conduct interviews of witnesses, recorded statements and things of that kind. I happen to be very visual and graphic, artistic, and I guess in Mm -hmm. a way I do my own graphics. I create my own websites. I did that because I got tired of waiting for somebody else to do it. And I found, although I wasted a fair amount of time early on years ago, that doing it myself, learning how it works, helped me quite efficiently address some needs. But also, I can now handle a pretty small auto tort for you, if that's what I choose to do and create something that looks like I hired this accident reconstructionist to diagram out every single thing that happened. What am I using? I'm using Photoshop. Right. All right. So there are a number of tools. I will create 
or edit a day in the life film on my own. Why? Because I know probably better than anyone I could hire exactly what it is I'm looking for. Now, of course, you have to have the skill to do it. You have to have adopted this. And I have a bit of a media background, so that works for me. But I will say it also has made my job much more interesting because I enjoy doing that kind of work. You might say, that's not real legal work. Yeah, it is, (laughs) because we live in a multimedia world and people learn in more ways than just reading the text that you write. Right. So to ignore all the senses that you can use to persuade and bring out your client's best position is to practice law with one hand tied behind your back. I refuse to do that. I think technology is a great way to add power to a presentation. Now, some lawyers, when they find an interesting piece of technology like PowerPoint, go crazy with it. They go overboard with it. You know, we've all been to CLE programs where we Mm -hmm. had to skip through as somebody gets through slide 85, and it is boring. It is death by PowerPoint. Let's not forget the audience and the fact that we're still at the end of the day communicating, not artificially, but with a human. The technology is wonderful to augment that and to streamline it, but to use it as a crutch, right. as the unfortunate attorney in New York did with artificial intelligence mm-hmm. and chat GPT, is to make a mistake in the other direction. You know, just curious, I want to take a step back. You mentioned VoIP, Voice Over Internet Protocol. What were you an earlier adopter? And if I may ask, what service do you use? I use a local company. It's Chesapeake Telephone. I think it. I think they use a beacon system. I'm actually looking at a Yaylink phone console, but not an early adopter. I actually had a voicemail system that I nursed along for years until it actually went kaput in a storm surge. And oh, sorry. Yeah, you no. Know, and at that point, I you know, got with the program and frankly found that it was uh, just the voice clarity alone. Wow. Wonderful. I've had good success with it. We've only, we've had it for probably about six months now, I want to say, and I'm very pleased with it. So other than the voice transcriptions, have you found any other programs that are baked in that, you know, can help integrate into your office system? You know, you'll get a voicemail, the audio file, the wave file sent to your email as well. Yeah. Sometimes people will leave messages that can be evidence later on. Yep. And that's always interesting how people can be that stupid. But anyway, I'm sorry. Well, you know, stupid and exactly, incriminating themselves, exactly. you know. Exactly. I mean that can happen. It also makes it easier to memorialize what a witness has to say mm-hmm, if they mm-hmm. authorize you to record them. So there are many things like that I think are very helpful, but also it's the type of system that you have a an app for your cell phone, smartphone. You can make a call from anywhere without knowing your cell number yep. if necessary. Yep. And frankly, it's eliminated borders on the practice of law. I could be talking with you from the south of France, and all you know is you called my office, you got me, and I'm working with you. Now, hold on. So I've noticed this issue come up recently that, so for instance, if you're in Maryland, but you happen to be on vacation in Florida or moved to Florida, 
there could be some issues of UPL, unless it's practice of law, among some others. And I know that the bars are really looking into whether or not what constitutes practice of law in their state. Are you practicing law in Florida, even though you're only doing Maryland, et cetera? And it's become a bit of a hodgepodge. Yes, the law is starting to adapt. Like I said, lawyers are slow to adapt to change, Mm -hmm. but we have learned in the course of a pandemic that it's not all that important where you are. It's what you do where you are. So federal lawyers, immigration lawyers, for example, can be licensed in Oregon and set up shop in Maryland for the practice of law. There's a federal overlay for that. So they're allowed to practice solely immigration law wherever they darn well please. That's not as true for other states, but it's becoming. So a case that you're alluding to in Maryland is Attorney Grievance Commission versus Jackson, which is a case that I handled Mm -hmm. in which they found that the attorney did technically violate, my client did technically violate prohibitions on the unauthorized practice of law because she was a D.C. lawyer setting up shop to practice D.C. law in Maryland. Right. But then they they unanimously dismissed all charges against my client saying, but the law is anti. We need to change that. We need to adopt what is going on in a trend of states nationwide that says, As long as you limit your practice within the scope of your licensure, the geographic scope is not what matters. But you're right. Not all states have gone that direction. Even Maryland hasn't yet, even though over a year ago, the court urged their rules committee to do it. The Luddites on the rules committee have been dragging their feet. And I should know because I'm on the rules committee and I'm (laughs) on the rules committee. The fact is that we're very slow to change, but... The law has got to change to adopt the realities of a modern world. And unfortunately, the unauthorized practice of law rules, many of which, frankly, make no sense to me at all anyway, but that's an entirely different show. You know, those rules are often antiquated. We've got to change them. I don't think it matters. I can be vacationing in the South of France. You won't necessarily know I'm vacationing in the South of France, but the reality is that I can be just as efficient anywhere on the planet as I am in my office where I'm talking to you right now. Excellent. Excellent. And I think that is a great place to leave it. I want to thank you again for being on my podcast today. Where can people find you? You can find me a number of places online. Attorneygrievances.com has a blog on ethical issues. The last two posts of which have been devoted to nothing other than our friend, GPT. I also have a blog for bar applicants facing character and fitness issues. So it's the, I can help you get your license and hopefully keep it. But baradmit.com has a blog there as well on the various issues that applicants face. You can certainly find me on either site and certainly look me up from there. If I can be of assistance to your listeners, certainly I'm happy to do. I'll be sure to have all of that on the blog post and also the recording post. And again, Erwin, I want to thank you very much. You have a great day. You too, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the page podcast. Our next episode will be posted in about two weeks. If you have any ideas about a future episode, please contact me at michaeldj at page. Have a great day and happy luring.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.